Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I welcome back to the podcast Dr Paul Jarrett to discuss acne vulgaris in primary care. Paul is a dermatologist working at Counties Manukau Health and at the University of Auckland. His primary interest is medical dermatology. Hello, Paul. Kia ora and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. So, Paul, we're discussing acne. Let's start with the definition. How do you define acne? Simple definition is that acne vulgaris is a common inflammatory disorder of the pilosebaceous unit. Well, that was easy. <laughs> so you've mentioned that it's a common condition. So most people will experience acne across the lifetime, but we usually think about it in teenagers. Can we talk about this for a moment? How common is acne and who gets acne? It's very common. Depending on the literature that you read, 90%, perhaps 100% of us will get acne, particularly in our teenage years. It's almost a universal condition. That said, it's important to remember that neonates can get it as well from maternal influences. And a special group not to forget are younger women in their 20s and 30s who may never have got rid of their acne or alternatively get acne for the first time. They're increasingly recognised as a group. Nobody likes acne, but particularly in that age group, it affects them enormously. So what's going on, Paul? What causes acne? The pilosebaceous unit secretes sebum, and that starts due to the hormonal stimulation around about puberty. Reasons are not entirely certain, the lining of that duct gets blocked. Perhaps it fails to shed correctly. If the duct is widely open, a blackhead is formed. That's the lay term for it. That black is not dirt, it's probably oxidised melanin. But if the pore is closed, you get a white head and the blackhead is missing. These are two key components of it. The pilosebaceous, the sebum material builds up and eventually it ruptures. The ruptured material goes in the skin and causes an intense inflammatory reaction. And that's when you get the redness, the papules and the pustules that then resolve with scarring. There's also a bug around the pilosebaceous orifice called Cutibacterium acnes. It's got something to do with acne, but nobody's quite certain what at the moment. You've mentioned blackheads and whiteheads. I wonder if we can talk about the clinical features of acne. I was very lucky to train with uh, an expert in acne. And one of the key things that I remember is that you need to examine the skin carefully in a bright light and to stretch the skin. If you don't stretch the skin, you'll not see those closed comedones, the whiteheads. And that's a trap because if they are still there at the end of your treatment period, the acne will have a very high likelihood of relapsing. And when they're present at the beginning of your treatment, you know that your treatment's probably going to have to be longer rather than shorter because they're difficult to resolve. You'll see the papules, the little red spots, and the pustules with pustules, and then scarring as well. There are different patterns of scarring in acne. There can be pits, there can be thickened scars, and if that's present, it's an indication of the severity of the acne. Remember that also acne can be focal. 
as well as diffuse. So some people might have really bad acne on just the cheek or their chest. And that again dictates treatment. And just as a differential, remember that rosacea, also called acne rosacea, can have pustules and papules, but the absence of comedones means that this is not acne vulgaris. Rosacea will be associated with flushing, and sometimes it can be difficult to separate the two. So I find the presence or absence of comedones to be a useful clinical guide. That's a great tip. Thank you. So thinking about classification now with acne, why is it important to classify acne and how do we classify it? You can divide it into mild and moderate and severe. And an important point to remember that this is a doctor-based classification and not a patient-based classification. And there's the old joke that the only dermatological emergency is the bride with a spot on her nose just before the wedding. You know, to them, that's severe. But it does make the important point that as a doctor, you need to acknowledge the distress that it causes. And you can't predict that. So some people who have absolutely awful acne say they're not troubled. They usually are, but they may not be. And some people with what you and I might regard as relatively mild acne are severely upset by that acne. And this raises the concept of dysmorphophobic acne. And dysmorphophobic acne is a body image disorder. And at its extreme end, people have no acne, but their life is dominated by this disorder. And it is key to pick those people out as being a little unusual because they require greater attention. And of course, there is a spectrum. Most people sit somewhere in the middle and really don't like it. So there's a doctor and the patient differing views about the severity. And the severity classification helps treatment choices. Paul, is there any reason to run any laboratory tests with acne? Usually not for standard acne. In an adolescent, they are well, and there's no need to investigate them. Unless, of course, you think there's an underlying pathology that may be driving the acne, for example, hyperandrogenism, and then you might want to check those tests, but usually not, and there's no need to swab. So moving now on to treatments for acne, I wonder if we can talk about the general principles of treatment. So there are topical and systemic agents, and the systemic agents include oral antibiotics, hormonal treatments, and of course, isotretinoin. Key things to remember that all of the skin of the face is treated and not just the spots. So the patient has to treat the whole face. It's a slowly responding condition to whatever treatment you choose. So at least three months to trial a treatment. Again, managing expectation is important. The other key thing is not to prescribe topical antibiotics. And if you use a systemic antibiotic, combine it with a non-antibiotic topical treatment, because we are now clearly in the days of antibiotic stewardship. And there is good evidence that topical antibiotics rapidly create resistance, and that can be disseminated around the community and have impact on other diseases. Paul, is there any evidence for a change in diet or lifestyle changes in managing acne? Well, I trained many years ago and the firm answer was no, you can eat what you like. Interestingly, there are recent publications questioning whether that is real or not and whether acne is a Western disease not seen in poorer countries. But 
the bottom line is at the moment that there may be one or two hints, but there's nothing convincing. There's nothing to change practice around diet or exercise. And my standard answer to that question is that a balanced, healthy diet is good for the skin, whatever the disorder is that you're treating. So, Paul, specifically about supplements, often people turn up at the pharmacy and they're told that they need zinc or fish oil. Is there actually evidence to support this treatment? In my view, no. I've yet to be persuaded by the science. But one important point to remember is that if patients are on vitamin A supplements and you decide to give them isotretinoin, they'll get increased side effects because isotretinoin is vitamin A derivative. That's a great point. Thank you. So discussing specific treatments for each class of acne, thinking first of all with mild acne, how do we classify this and how do we treat it? We talked about not using topical antibiotics. So mild acne would be mainly comedonal, perhaps a few papules confined to the face. And that would be a very good indication for a topical treatment. Topical retinoids I like because the science around the reversing of the fundamental problems of acne, they reduce the activity of the pilosebaceous duct, which is active. It probably helps to reverse that blockage of the lining of the pilosebaceous duct. So my first choice would be a topical retinoid, but patients can buy benzoyl peroxide, for example, over the counter, and that's a good treatment as well. I made the point earlier that the patient needs to be reminded to apply it to all of the face. And the number of youngsters I've seen literally spot treating and not creating a field change, they'll never get on top of it. So you need to be explicit about that point. We go on to moderate acne, that would be more extensive facial acne extending to the trunk. And it's good to, to check the trunk routinely, even if it's just mild acne on the face. As I mentioned before, you can get severe focal acne, and that's not uncommon to be on the chest. And unless you look, you won't know it, and that will alter the way you want to treat these patients. Topical treatments don't work for the trunk. They're really designed for the face. So here, you would add a systemic agent, perhaps doxycycline. And remember that we're using antibiotics here, not for the antibiotic property, but for the anti-inflammatory property. Doxycycline has a wide variety of anti-inflammatory actions. And interestingly, we use it for other diseases, for example, bullous pemphigoid, where we use its anti-inflammatory component. Doxy is a photosensitizing agent. So be careful that people don't get sunburnt in the summer. If it's very severe, and remember that severe may be different for the patient as it is to you, but dermatologically speaking, that would be extensive acne on the face and the trunk with comedones, papules, pustules, and scarring. You might want to start with combination of a topical treatment and an oral antibiotic, but actually, if it's that bad, you probably want to go straight to isotretinoin in the presence of scarring. I'll touch on scarring, which is the realm of cosmetic dermatology. We'll talk about isotretinoin in a moment, but if a patient wants treatment for their scarring, it is important that there is a stand-down period between having that treatment and stopping isotretinoin, because isotretinoin shrivels up some of the glands that are necessary for skin rejuvenation after laser treatment. So depending on the surgeon or the dermatologist, it'd be six to 12 months stand down time, but there are many other treatments for scarring, subcision, fillers, excision of scars. 
But here we're talking about the medical dermatology side of it. Paul, I wonder if we could just touch on the use of laser with the treatment of acne and specifically with scarring. What should we be looking for if we're recommending laser treatment? Is there a role to recommend laser treatment and who should we be referring to? Thank you. Yes, there is definitely a role for laser and light treatment. There are some papers reporting the use of light treatment to treat active acne, but the question is around scarring. A reminder we mentioned earlier that there is a stand down period between stopping isotretinoin because that's very likely to be what the patient has been taking before they start laser treatment. And a trained laser operator will ask that question. So lasers can help erythema and they can help scarring as well, a fraxel, for example. It is important because this industry is unregulated that the referral is made to a trained operator somebody that is experienced in the use of lasers. And my suggestion is where there is a clinic where there's perhaps senior medical oversight, not necessarily undertaken by the senior medical practitioner, but you know that you're dealing with a clinic where there are trained operators of the laser. You mentioned the Frexel laser. So is it what we should be looking for versus something like IPL? If I'm honest, I'm not up in this area. It changes all the time. And I mention that because I know it's used. I think the key is to going to train people that know what they're doing. That's the key thing. And they'll deliver whatever lasers the current one for it. So moving on now to isotretinoin, I wonder if we can discuss this drug in a little bit more detail. So the class of drug, first of all. So it's an oral retinoid. And its mode of action, please. A little bit, as we've, like we've discussed with the topical agents, it works in the same way, but it's more effective. So it reduces sebum excretion. It helps to normalise the shedding of the duct. And interestingly, both the topical and the systemic agent, those cutie bacterium around the orifices die because the microenvironment has changed. Whether that's therapeutic benefit or not is open for discussion, but it does explain the flare that you sometimes get when you start isotretinin, which we'll touch on in a moment. So what do we need to consider before starting isotretinoin? It's very quick often to make the diagnosis that they need isotretinoin. Often you make that diagnosis, they come through the door. The essential thing is the counselling of the patient before they start. They need to be told about the drug in depth. I give every patient written information about the medication And personally, I get signed informed consent from both male and female patients. It is important to remind them that they will continue to get acne during the first half of the treatment. And as they go through the treatment course, the active acne will settle. The ones that are there will resolve. So manage the length of time and the expectations. We need to consider the side effects as well. So important issues around the side effects are the dry skin. That is inevitable. Everybody gets it. Dry lips, dry nose, sometimes dry eyes. Teratogenicity, it is a universally teratogenic drug. It is a disaster if a woman were to fall pregnant on it, and that needs to be explicitly discussed. And it does require the art of medicine when a young teenage person comes with their parent or guardian to navigate that conversation well and with sensitivity. 
a discussion about the putative association with depression and mood change is very important to document medically. Legally. You have to remember that acne causes depression and effectively treating acne will alleviate that depression. There's a very good meta-analysis, which I think is the highest level of evidence that I can find that actually suggests that these drugs don't cause depression, but it only takes one person to harm themselves and that completely clouds your view about it. It's a photosensitizing drug as well. That doesn't stop me from giving it to patients during the summer. Musculoskeletal pain can be a real problem in young teenage athletes and also older people seem to get more prone to it. So if you have somebody in their 30s or 50s, or I've even treated people in their 60s, that seems to be more prevalent with age. Paronychia. So I've seen a number of people where paronychia are not recognized as the side effect of the drug. So they get painful pussy lesions around the sides of the nails, particularly the toenails. So if you get that in the setting of isotretinoin, the first thing to do is to stop the drug. And often it will settle with that alone. Headache as well. Some people can get blinding headaches. And remember, there is a drug interaction between tetracyclines and isotretinoin. So if you've got somebody on doxy and it's not working, give them a break from doxy before starting isotretinoin so there's not a drug-drug interaction and they get a severe headache. Don't wax. Don't wax if you're on isotretinoin. It causes fragility of the skin. And I've seen a number of unfortunate women, usually rather than men, that have square erythema where the waxing paper stripped off the hair and the upper layers of the epidermis as well because the skin is more susceptible to shearing. The last comment here is be careful with pilots because it's a drug that they have to declare and you can ground a commercial pilot if you're not careful. Those are all great tips. So you mentioned um, you wouldn't not start isotretinoin in summer, but is there a better time to start? The time to start is when you decide you need to give it. And I guess if you can start in the winter, that's ideal. But if it's the height of summer and they've got bad acne, I will start them on isotretinoin because they want the treatment. The sooner you can start treating them, the quicker they'll get better and the less scarring will occur. Times where I have deferred it, are, for example, students doing exams. So young people can get a bit off on isotretinoin and they're dry and a bit, they don't like it. So coming up to important exams, I've often deferred it. And for athletes as well in the athletic season, we've held the fort with standard treatment before they start doing that until they finish their athletic season. But normally just start it. Fantastic. And just thinking about dosing now. So what is the dose? The answer to that is the dose they tolerate. It's very interesting. In the old days, we dosed on weight. So if you're a 100 kilo person, you'd have 100 milligrams. But frankly, most human beings can't stand that dose. And if you ask people who are now in their 50s, they'll say that was the worst drug I ever had in my life, ever. So they art of it is to give them the dose that they tolerate. And people are variable. So some people can't even tolerate low doses, so you have to go lower. So I would start with a low dose and build it up and give them a low dose over a longer period rather than a high dose over a shorter period that they don't tolerate. And an example, most people will tolerate 20 or 30 milligrams a day, for example. Most people do, but not everybody. 
One other point to make, maintenance dosing can be very low. So some people will keep their acne at bay with five milligrams twice a week, 10 milligrams twice a week. It can be very, very low once you've got on top of it. So thinking about monitoring now, Paul, is there any monitoring we need to do? Thinking liver function, cholesterols, pregnancy tests, etc. So I always do baseline bloods on everybody. And in fertile women, I always do a pregnancy test, always. It's important medically legally. And just once in a while, I picked up women who are just pregnant and they didn't know about it. It is a disaster to start it at that point in their pregnancy. The guidelines are check it about a month after. So I always do about a month after starting, I check it. It's very common for the lipids to rise a little bit and that's reversible. The NZ formulary says then check three monthly, but personally in young, fit, healthy people who are otherwise well, who've had a normal set of starting treatment bloods, I don't routinely check it. Where I do routinely check it is where they may have other comorbidities. For example, if I treat somebody with a liver transplant who's got steroid-induced acne, I want to make sure that liver's okay. So then I'll be intensive. So there may be occasions where you do need to check regularly. Paul, I wonder if we could discuss pregnancy contraception and isotretinoin. This is a real concern for us in primary care. And I know lots of different practices have different protocols, but I'm interested in your approach to this potential problem. Key is that you check a pregnancy test before you start it. As I mentioned earlier, women may be just pregnant. When they come back for their routine check in a month or six weeks after starting, I'll always check it then. That said, it's very possible that a woman could fall pregnant the day after starting their isotretinoin. So my standard practice is to have signed, informed consent, and I keep that consent, warning them about the risks of pregnancy. Without exception, in any fertile women, I'll always do that. The medical legal activity around it is enormous. There are times when I won't give isotretinoin when I'm uncertain about the reliability of the history I'm getting. So if it's perhaps a young teenager who, and I I don't quite understand what's going on and they're not on effective contraception, I'm very, very grateful for colleagues in the community for having oversight of their contraception. I don't prescribe the contraceptive pill, so I'll tell those people, go to your doctor, get on effective contraception, and then come back, or of course, the community may prescribe it for them. I don't take a blanket approach. If you give them information, you've recorded it, you've got signed consent, and they know about the risk, then I think treating them as mature adults is important. And often these women who are sexually active are on contraception anyway, problem solved, or their partners had a vasectomy. One area that I am always wary about is women towards the end of their fertile cycle. And it's not unheard of for a woman, perhaps in their late 40s, early 50s, and they know they're not going to get pregnant, but they're coming to the end of their menstrual cycles, but they get pregnant. And they often don't think about that on isotretinoin. So that is a particular risk where I overtly discuss that with them, because it might not be in their habit to have effective contraception. And I'm not a contraception expert, but I know the condom fails regularly. And if that's what they're using, it might fail and they might get pregnant and they might have a deformed baby. And the psychology around women getting pregnant on isotretinoin, it's terrible for them. 
So I take a firm line and I'm not prescriptive, but I judge the consult against the person that I'm seeing in close liaison with their practitioner. It's a really sensible approach. I think so. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. One other thing I wanted to touch on was the flare that goes yeah. often with starting isotretinoin. And often people can start and because the flare is so vicious, they will then stop. So what can we do to minimise that flare for the individual? First thing to do is to recognise the people that are likely to flare. And I mentioned to you before, hunt for comedones. If they have a lot of comedones, particularly those ones you can't see and you have to look by stretching, that's a risk. The other risk group are people with awful, awful acne. If you want to take a belt and braces approach, then I start erythromycin perhaps two weeks beforehand, start isotretinoin then after about 14 days at a very low dose. That might be five milligrams a day, five milligrams on alternate days run the erythromycin for another two weeks, and then slowly, slowly, slowly increase the isotretinoin. You've got plenty of time. This drug will always work given a sufficiently long period of time. If it's horrendous acne, then I also would add in some systemic steroids as well. Now, I know that they are comedogenic, but in the short term, they're a very good way of preventing the flare. And again, I'll bracket the introduction. It is a trap to start a treatment dose of isotretinoin in the setting of people that will flare. And again, not to my knowledge in New Zealand, but overseas, there's been medical legal activity around that. Starting cautiously is also very good for people who have standard, if I can use that word, bad acne. Because if you start on the treatment dose right away, they don't like it. They have to ease into the side effects. And often they are much more comfortable on a low dose, and then you build it up slowly to the dose that they tolerate. And if they can only tolerate half the normal dose, give them twice as long. Because my observation, certainly in the hospital practice for people that fail isotretinoin, is that the reason that they fail is they're not given long enough. And the end point is when you've got rid of all the comedones and all the red spotty ones have stopped for at least six to eight weeks, however long that takes. And that might be six months. In really severe acne, it might be 18 months. It's a biological endpoint rather than a treatment dose endpoint. I was just going to ask you about duration of treatment, but you've covered that beautifully. Thank you. So as far as how effective is the course, what can we tell our patients to expect? Well, it is very unusual in medicine to say we will get you better. This is a reliable drug. It works all the time, provided it's managed well. So the patient expectations around the side effects are managed and they're given enough treatment. There is a relapse rate. So people that are going to relapse are young people who have it early in their acne cycle and people with really bad acne and people with multiple comedones. And roughly one in five will be back on it within five years. And that's partly because their tolerance for acne has gone down. So any acne that comes back, they don't like. And the other thing to remember about the pharmacology of the drug is when you stop the drug, it takes roughly a year for the pilosebaceous units to recover. And that's quite nice. It's a honeymoon period. They get benefit without the drug. And a relapse might occur 12 months commonly at the end of a completed treatment course. I wonder about 
managing acne in primary care. So it is something that we do and we do very well, but every now and again, we will need to refer on. So what would be the red flags that would necessitate a referral to a dermatologist? So I think if you're uncomfortable about starting isotretinoin in the presence of high-risk acne, which is severe, with a high risk of a flare, that would be an indication to refer. Because it does take some experience, if you're not experienced with the use of isotretinone, to introduce it without a risk of exacerbating their scarring. So that would be the first thing. The other important one is where there are existing comorbidities. For example, there may be underlying liver disease, eczema. Eczema and acne coexist. So if you give isotretinoin to somebody with atopic eczema, it will make that eczema worse. So that requires a bit of nuancing around the use of isotretinoin. Pick out the dysmorphophobic patients, the people that are at that extreme end of concern with minimal or no acne, but are their life is driven. They are best managed, I would suggest, by one person because they will doctor hop from person to person until they get what they want, which is isotretinone. And embracing the problem and managing it is very important. And the key is to recognize those people. And the other group would be the very young, who may have some underlying cause, and the very old. So the oldest person I've treated for acne was in their 60s, if I recall correctly. And they often are sensitive to the side effects of isotretinone. Thank you, Paul. And to conclude our podcast today, please, your take-home messages for our listeners. In brief, never underestimate the psychological impact of acne at any age. What you regard as mild, the patient may regard as severe, and it's fully treatable. One way or another, you can reassure the patient, we will get you better, even if you end up on isotretinone. And move steadily through the treatment ladder, progressively, and if needed, onto isotretinone. So that would be topical, topical with a systemic agent, and then isotretinone. If you're not getting to where you need to be, move on and don't repeat the same treatment. Start isotretinone early if the acne is severe or there's a risk of scarring. Remember, scarring actually is potentially completely preventable, provided acne is treated early enough. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. If you're a New Zealand GP, please claim your CPD points for listening to this podcast and you will find our resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening and thank you, Paul, for joining me. Pleasure.